Luke chapter 2. Um, as I mentioned, we'll take a two-week break from Exodus. Um, and we'll pick back up again on January 9th. Luke chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 22. If you're able, <clears throat> all of a sudden started losing my voice. Um, somebody's going to have to take over for me if I suddenly can't speak. <clears throat> um, uh, if you would, uh, let's, if you're able, let's stand as we read God's word together. <clears throat> and when the time came for, <clears throat> when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem. That's going to be Joseph and Mary and, uh, Jesus to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of Moses, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. His father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Uh, would you pray with me? Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would teach us. Use this, your word, uh, to grow us in our knowledge of and love for Christ, and uh, that our lives might more and more conform uh, to his image. We pray all this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, you're familiar, I assume, um, with uh, Starlight, Starbright, First Star I See Tonight. I wish I may, I wish I might, have the wish, I wish tonight. Um, surely we all recognize that, that stars don't grant wishes. Um, we know that when we say that, that we're not expecting that that first star of evening to suddenly give us something that we want or need. The reality is, if you uh, if you say that little poem at all, and I have to admit, there are times when it, you know, you're you're, you're driving home in the evening and and you kind of notice that one star, or you're you're at home and you take the dog out and you're like, there it is. There's the first star of evening, the first star to show up in the night sky. There are times when that poem actually kind of runs through my head. Am I the only, maybe I'm the only one? Maybe I'm the only sane one in the room. Um, 
But it's just sort of this announcement that there is a star. It's not really a poem that you know is going to get you some sort of wish. Uh, I wish I may. I wish I might have the wish I wish tonight. That star is not going to grant you anything. You know that. If you think that poem at all, it's really just an announcement. It's not really a desire for some wish to be answered or some some need or desire to be given uh, you know that it's really just an announcement that there is a star in the sky and it's the first one of the evening in a lot of ways Simeon appears to us in this passage as one who has just seen that first star He's sort of the one that walks out in the evening. He's driving home from work. He's not, you know, that right. But and sort of sees that star and and begins to recite that poem for us. You know, if you think about. Um, if you if you if you if you're on Facebook at all. And, and you read some of the insanity that you can find there. If you watch the news, if you if you keep up with um, the the latest Omicron variant, and and you're uh, you y'all know I'm a soccer fan. Their Premier League, Britain, their Premier League matches getting canceled every week because teams don't have enough players because of COVID. If you if you keep up with those things, you sort of know that it just seems a little bleak right now that that regardless of of what you know or there, there's you just sort of watch the news you keep up with with covid you can all this and and you read the stuff on Facebook, and you think it's just not right it's just not a pretty scene right now and you wonder you, you wonder where the believers are you wonder where Christians are. You, you watch interactions on Facebook and you think to yourself, is that really how believers should be acting? Is that really the kind of thing that Christians should be saying? Or, or the, the world, the, the, the darkness of the news and, and the fear and whatnot. And you kind of look around and wonder, where are the believers? Where are the Christians? Think about Simeon's time. Simeon's living, um, you know, that blank piece of paper between Malachi and Matthew. Um, that's 400 years, that blank piece of paper, right? You, you turn a blank page in your Bible, and, and for them, that's 400 years. That's older than the U.S. is, right? So you do the math. Put it in perspective, 400 years they've had no prophets. 400 years they haven't heard a, a message from the Lord. They haven't gotten um, further revelation from God himself. There are Jewish leaders. You've got one group, Pharisees, they're kind of legalists. You've got another group, the Sadducees, that you would probably kind of scratch your head because they have some weird views on the body and the resurrection. Israel's government? I mean, who's on the throne? It's not a descendant of David. It's, it's Herod. 400 years, four centuries without a, a prophet. 
And do you think you live in a hopeless, dark, difficult time? Imagine being God's chosen people. You've had his presence from the Old Testament. You can literally read back through and see your great, 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 go 15, 25 greats back and and see where, oh, they were alive when, you know, the the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. They were alive when when David was around. And now 400 years of silence. That that special relationship that the Jewish people knew with God, they right now aren't real sure. You talk about you talk about looking at the world around you and thinking maybe God's not paying attention, maybe God doesn't care, maybe God doesn't exist at all. That's the world of into which Jesus was born. That's the world in which Simeon lives. But did you notice how he was described? In verse 25, we're told that Simeon was a righteous and devout man. Now, there's are two words you are really hesitant to use to describe people. Because we have this notion, we have this understanding that there's nobody right. Like, I can't ha- call anybody righteous. And yet the Bible isn't afraid to describe Simeon as righteous and devout. Righteous has to do with his vertical relationship with God. Devout has his, um, no, the other way around. Righteous has to do with his relationship with other people. Devout has to do with his vertical relationship with God. And so even in the midst of all that darkness, of all that silence, here's someone who is righteous in his dealings with others and devout in his commitment, in his relationship with God. Part of the picture here is God always has his servants. No matter how dark or difficult or bleak the situation might appear to you, God always has his servants. No matter how many times you scratch your head and wonder, is this really how believers act? I'm starting to wonder if there's anybody out there who's truly a Christian. God always has his servants. In fact, notice verse 25. He's actually waiting for something or someone. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's looking for the Messiah. So even in the midst of all that darkness, and, and keep in mind, he's living Old Testament life, not New Testament. See, we have the privilege of looking back and seeing and celebrating Christmas. And seeing that God really does care so much that he would grant his son to us and send him to be born of a virgin in a manger. Simeon is there at the first Christmas. He doesn't have that backwards looking, that backwards history. There's there's at least one guy. Part of the picture here in Luke 2 is that there's at least one guy, this guy Simeon, who understood the Old Testament well enough to know that God would bring 
the Messiah. That God would send someone to be our deliverer. And so he knows his Bible. He knows his Old Testament. And he has an eye towards the redemption of God's people. At some level, you may from time to time feel like you're the only one. I'm the only one at work. I listen to the way people talk around the water cooler. And, and I'm just, you know, they, they say they go to church, but the rest of the picture doesn't seem to match up. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, I'm, I'm the only one. There are just a lot of people around who claim to be Christians and yet their life gives no evidence. Well, the picture here is that God always has his servants. Even when the world seems its darkest, even when uh, it seems the most ble- the bleakest outlook of all, Jesus promised that he would build his church and that the very gates of hell itself would not, could not prevail against her. In other words, God has his servants. God always has his people. His church cannot be destroyed. His church, his kingdom cannot fail. And that's part of the picture that Simeon provides for us. You know, by the way, that's really more a comment, uh, a commentary on God than on Simeon. That actually has more to say about who God is than about who Simeon is. Because notice the language that Luke uses. Now, keep in mind, this is Luke 2. This is an Acts 2. That timing matters. Same author, volume one, history of the church from zero to 65-ish AD, right? Volume one is Luke, volume two is Acts. In Acts two, you get Pentecost, you get the sending of the Holy Spirit. But in Luke two, you've got a guy who is, and notice how many times, verses 26, 27. It had been revealed to him, well, verse 25, the Spirit was upon him. It had been been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came to the temple that day in the Spirit. God is at work through the power of the Holy Spirit in Simeon's life to put him to raise up a man looking for the consolation of Israel and to go to the temple that very day of all days. Jesus' day to be purified, Mary's day to be purified in the temple. Three times we're told the Spirit's at work in His life to raise up someone anticipating the Messiah and to be there that very day. God is at work Not just generally, but God's at work in Simeon's life in particular. Starlight, star bright, first star I see tonight. See, the the reality is you can't see that star. 
if you're not looking in the right direction. You can't see that first star of evening if you're not looking up to the sky. If all you're doing is looking at the things around you, you don't ever see that star. You don't know that there's suddenly a star that has appeared in the evening sky. It, it takes Simeon looking for that star. It takes someone like Simeon looking for the Messiah, anticipating the son of righteousness, Malachi 4.2. And here Simeon announces the arrival of this, this light, this star in the temple. God has his servants. But secondly, God has his savior. Notice, notice the things that Simeon says, beginning in verse 29. Uh, Lord, you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. My eyes have seen your salvation. Now, keep in mind, Jesus is not walking. Jesus isn't yet walking. I mean, he's, he's still right. He's Mary and Joseph carry him into the temple. Simeon says, hey, that's Jesus. I want to hold him and holds him like. He's seen God's salvation even though Jesus hasn't yet died on the cross, even though Jesus hasn't yet been raised from the dead, he sees Jesus and he knows this is the deliverer. This is the Messiah. This is the salvation for God's people that God has been promising since Genesis 3.15. This is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament has anticipated and longed for. But notice Jesus doesn't come just for the, the Israelites. Notice verse 32. He's a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Jesus wasn't a last minute um, plan B, C, G. I don't know. He was. I'm seeing your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. This has been the plan that God has made from before the foundation of the world. The entire Old Testament paves the way for us to see Jesus as the promised Messiah. This isn't something that God decided one day, well, now I've got to figure out what to do. Oh no, Adam and Eve sinned. Oh no, David wasn't the right king. Oh no, um, uh, Babylon came and defeated Israel. Now what? This has been the plan from the beginning. This has been the plan all along. All these Old Testament passages that we read Friday night point to Jesus. And, and since this Messiah comes for all peoples, verse 31, both Israelites, verse 32, and Gentiles, there's, that's, that's the Bible's way of saying everybody. You're either Jewish or you're a Gentile. You're either Jewish or you're not Jewish. And if you, if you do the Venn diagram thing, there's nobody left. There's nobody else that, that can fit into the, the diagram anywhere. And so Jesus comes to save both Jews and Gentiles. You know, one of, the, one of my biggest problems with Christmas, um, and it seems like we do this every year, it's, it's less of a problem here in our house now uh, than it was in our house uh, back in Mississippi. Um, 
But every year, you know, it comes time to get in the Christmas tree and you have to have the conversation. Where are we going to put this? Uh, maybe y'all don't. Do, maybe you're just like, well, this is the routine. This is kind of how this works. And we end up putting it in the same place every time. I mean, it doesn't change, but we still at least have to have the conversation. Where are you going to put this? In our house in Mississippi, it was worse because where we wanted to put the Christmas tree meant you had to slide a bookcase. It meant moving uh, Jasper's dog crate. It meant um, sliding a, a, a chair and a and a like an end table. It meant rearranging things. And see, my problem is I'm an early riser. I get up and it's dark and there's no sunlight coming in the house and I don't turn on lights. I just learn my way around my house. And so I get around my house in the dark until I can get to a place where I can turn a light on and not bother anybody. Except in that house, I had to go through the den to get from my bedroom to my coffee. Which meant now you've got this tree that doesn't take up the same space that the dog crate took up. And a bookcase that's not where it was before. It's a step or two earlier. And a table that you can't quite cut off as soon as you think you could because you might run. You see the problem? In the darkness, the rearranging of the furniture made me really nervous. What I needed was light. What I needed was something to, to defeat the darkness, to peel back that darkness so that I could see what I was doing. So I could see to, to make my way through the house. Notice Jesus comes as a light for the Gentiles. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. The people who once walked in darkness have seen a great light. People who didn't have the, the light of revelation of the Old Testament like the Israelites did. Uh, who didn't have that same centuries and centuries and generations of, of special relationship with God that the Israelites could claim for themselves. Who didn't have the same understanding and knowledge and, and, and access to the prophets and, and all of that. Who lived under a different worldview, a different philosophy than the Israelites did. They had their own philosophy. They had their own thoughts on wisdom for those people who lived in darkness, Jesus comes to be the light. To be the light that they might see and understand the world around them and, and their own need for a Savior. Starlight, star bright, first star I see tonight. You know, the, in the Bible, darkness is really a... Um, a picture of ignorance. It's a picture of, of sin, of misery, of, of lack of understanding, of lack of, of knowledge. And that's really the, the perfect description, description of salvation for the Gentiles. They were lost in their ignorance. They were lost in their lack of knowledge and understanding. And Jesus comes to give light. Piercing the darkness, piercing our innermost parts, enlightening our minds and shining the light on God's word that we might see and understand and trust in Jesus. But not only is he a light for revelation to the Gentiles, he's also the glory of the people of God, the people of Israel. All these glory passages in 
the Old Testament, the, the pillar of cloud, uh, the, the cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, all these, uh, the glory uh, of, of God passing before God's people um, as they headed from Egypt into the promised land. And when that cloud stopped, when the fire stopped, the people stopped. And when it moved, they moved. That's a, a picture of God's presence with his people. You've got Moses coming down. We'll see this in a few weeks. But Moses coming down from the mountain and he's seen God's glory. But even then, just sort of a sampling of it. And the people said, your face is too bright. I don't want to see that. It's that kind of glory. It was a picture of God's presence with his people. And notice this Messiah, his name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. But his glory can be seen another way because they had this special status, this special relationship with God. They were the only nation that had God's favor. He comes to them. We See this in Deuteronomy. I've, I've come and, and chosen you of all the nations out there. I've taken you to be my own. They weren't in the same kind of darkness as the Gentiles. They had this special covenant relationship with God and that, that no other nation knew. Israel doesn't get the same treatment in the Old Testament as the Egyptians did. Or as the Canaanites did. And yet for that, Israel took pride in themselves. We're the descendants of Abraham. We're the descendants of David. We, we come from Abraham. So of course God loves us just purely by genealogy. David's our forefather. So of course God loves us. They gloried in that, that relationship, even though it was not from the heart. It was purely external and genealogical. What they missed was that relationship depended on this Jesus. That relationship all along depended on this Jesus. That apart from him, that relationship wasn't a relationship at all. The very fact that Jesus was a Jew, that Jesus was under the same law that Jesus had given to the Israelites... Through Moses, uh, that Jesus was born to the house of David in the city of Bethlehem, that Jesus came to save the world. That's Israel's glory, that Jesus is one of theirs. And yet they missed it. That baby that Simeon holds in his arms is the salvation that God has prepared for all people, a light for the Gentiles. And glory for Israel. And the reality is that's Simeon's message to anybody who will listen. That God has his servants and God has his savior. And yet there's a warning. Verse 34. Did you notice this warning? Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. In other words, we don't get to read and through verse, say, 32 and say, oh, well, Jesus is going to save anybody and everybody. And that all men everywhere throughout time and space and history 
everybody's going to go to heaven and nobody's going to to stumble over Jesus. But Simeon says, look, he's going to be the cause of the fall of many and the rise of many. There will be Gentiles who stumble over the foolishness of the preaching of the gospel, Colossians 1 tells us. There will be Jews who will, will balk at the idea of proclaiming Christ. He'll be a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. There are many who will rise, many who will fall on account of Christ. Those who rise will be saved and those who fall will face the wrath and curse of God forever, as we just confessed just a few minutes ago. And so Simeon basically, in verse 34, asks us, what's your response to Jesus? How do you respond to this child that I'm holding in my hands? God has his servants. God has his savior. But you need this savior. You need to trust in this baby who I hold, Simeon says. Some will look to him and fall. Some will look to him and rise and stand. Will you look to Christ for your salvation? Will you look to him and him alone for your deliverance? Will you trust in Jesus, this salvation that God has sent for his people? Or will you trust in your own wisdom, your own good works, your own goodness, your own name, your own genealogy? What's your response to Christmas? What's your response to Jesus? I mentioned that there are times when uh, I'll be driving home or I'll, I'll see, yeah, take Bingley out for a, use the bathroom or something after he's eaten and, and you see that star at night. And I literally will think, Starline, star, I literally think that in my head. I don't know why. I have no idea why. It's just become sort of a natural response. I guess you do it enough times and and it just sort of happens but it's sort of automatic. Like it just happens and I don't think about it. Like I don't realize it. What's your automatic response to Jesus? For Simeon, it was blessing God. For Simeon, it was praising God for this salvation promised from before the foundation of the world. When you're faced with Christ in a sermon, when you're faced with Christ reading through his word, what's your response? What's your reaction? Does praise fall from your lips? Or does it not? Does praise fall as easily as a, a nursery rhyme? Does this response of praise and glory to Christ for His obedience in our place just automatically come out of you? Because that's its aim. That's the goal. The goal is that as believers, we would stand and trust and look to Him, to this salvation, to this Jesus born on that first Christmas morning to save us from our sin, that we might praise and honor and glorify Him and announce His presence every chance that we get. God has His servants. God has His Savior. How will you respond to Him? Let's pray together.
Father in heaven, we uh, thank you that you, uh, even before the foundation of the world, uh, determined to send your son to redeem us, to save uh, rebellious sinners from guilt and, and sin and shame and misery. To give us victory over the grave because Christ has defeated sin and death. And we pray that uh, particularly right here on the heels of Christmas. Uh, that the praise of Christ, the praise of your glory would just fall from our lips. Uh, because we have seen, uh, we've encountered Jesus. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.